I'm your host, Rena Friedman Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Hey, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mommy's calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy because he knows you best. He's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees possibilities. Oh, Today's episode with Aaron Keating is about pivoting bouncing back, reinventing yourself, and a little bit of pleasure. Introducing the host of Hotter Than Ever, Aaron Keating. Aaron, welcome. Hi, hi. Hey there. Oh my gosh. I have been listening to some of your other oh, podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wow, I can't wait to hear what my dad has to say. And we haven't even gotten started. <laughs> yeah. My dad listens sometimes too. It's <laughs> Ooh, tell me yeah. about that. Don't like it. <laughs> What's your relationship with your dad like? Oh my God, is that where we're starting? We're starting with that? Yeah, let's start there. Are we in? Are we going? Better call daddy. It's rough. He's difficult. I struggle. I struggle with it. Yeah, I don't know how much I want to talk about it in detail just because it's a it's one of the toughest in my life. Uh, love him a lot and really work hard to be a good girl and, and do things right, but also have to have boundaries because I don't have your dad. Well, I, I get that. What's interesting is I've heard you talk about your mom being a role model and her going yeah. back to school and totally reinventing herself. And I was yeah. like, wow, I love and am inspired by that. Yeah, absolutely. She has been my my rock and my support and my fan club. My dad's a big fan of me, too. It's just, you know, it's like non-custodial parent stuff and divorce stuff and personal issue stuff that, like, makes it real hard. But my mom is, like, even-keeled, positive. She just turned 80. We just threw a party for her. And, yeah, she is a real strong presence in my life and my kids' lives. That's beautiful. What yeah. was the party like? Oh, I mean, we had a friend come and sing songs for her the cousins were all there like you know her friends like we all gave speeches and talked about how amazing she is and yeah it was a joy it was a joy. my so kids who cute. are 12 I have twins who are 12 and they both made speeches uh, I think that was like the best part for her probably they're like just turning into people that's huge I have a 12 year old so I totally get that did you help them with the speeches I did not uh maybe a tiny tiny bit 
my daughters, they both read them to me in advance, but they were so great. And also like, I've been a development executive my whole life. I'm not going to fucking develop their scripts. You know what I mean? Like, it's not fair. It's not kind. And so what I wanted to do is just tell them they're, they did a great job, which they really, really did. It was very heartfelt. I do want to talk a little bit about like your development path, because even as a kid, I heard you say you used to do like one woman shows. What were your shows about as a kid? Well, I wasn't a kid. I was in college. And then after college, I did some like autobiographical performance art kind of stuff around like body image. And then I can't say it was great art. It was, it was good therapy, but I don't know. It was great art. But the one person shows were lots of characters, lots of characters and costume changes. So I did one called Ravenous. It was all about women and desire, which is, you know, my still my fucking theme, still my thing. Can I curse? I love. Yeah. That. Yeah. Your woman and desire chapter is juicy. The fact that I heard you say you didn't have sex for 10 years and then you got on a sexting app. Can we talk a little bit about that? Facts. Yeah. So I'm shy about talking about my relationship with my dad, but I'll tell you everything about my sex life. <laughs> Just <laughs> You know, I think we're protective of different things, right? Yeah, I had, I had a challenging marriage that was long, 17 years, the last 10 years. And, you know, the more I think about it, those were the years after my kids were born. So, like, it's not a coincidence, and I don't think I'm alone in this in saying the 10 years of my marriage that overlapped with being a mom of twins and a, a working professional and with a lot of ambition coupled with some ruptures in the marriage and some issues that I had nothing to do with creating. They just came with my husband. All that stuff conspired to really uh, wreck our intimacy. So then when he left, which was a mutual agreement, and good, I think, for both of us, ultimately, I really wanted to rediscover myself and reconnect with myself because I had always been a sexual person and someone who really cared about sexuality and who really cared about pleasure and found that to be a great part of myself as a young woman. And so I went I went out looking for it, really. But I had a road to get there. I wasn't like he walked out the door and I immediately jumped into bed with people. I started by sort of feeling out the world of what was online. I literally went in the app store and was like, what are the dating apps? And I found this one that was just sexting. And I was like, oh, well, that will probably fill some need and be safe, right? And make me not that vulnerable to the emotional and the physical and logistical risks of dating. Like, I just was like, let me feel, feel out what this is. So I, I posted an ad that was like, no picture, just like I'm 50 which I was at the time, or 51. I'm just coming back to life after a long marriage. I could use some help. And of course, you know, there were many volunteers. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was like a sounding a call. <laughs> And there were all kinds of guys who were interested in in talking to me and helping Stella get her groove back is really what happened. Oh, my gosh. Did any of them actually want to meet in person or is there an understanding? Some of them wanted the to, but I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. So I had a sexting relationship with one person for a long time. A long, it felt like a long time. It was so intense. It was probably a couple months until I was ready. Like I sort of like broke through my, I wasn't able to have like a full, complete orgasm at the end of my marriage. I could get almost there. And then not get over the edge. I just so there was so much trapped and bottled up and compressed in me. Um, and so this guy was like very instructional and he helped me break through that. And then once that happened, I was like, oh, mama's back. <laughs> 
that's and amazing. I, decided I would I would go out and look for for someone to uh, to connect with in real life, and that that started a, a string of dalliances, shall we say? <laughs> that lasted until I fell in love with one of those guys. So that's that's my story. Yeah, were there new rules? Yes, there were new rules. That's a great question. Thank you for that question. The rules were, I don't lie. I don't stick around if it's yucky in any way. If someone treats me in a way that I don't like, I tell them. Mm. If someone, yeah, I just was like, I had my own back. I wasn't looking for a life partner or any kind of partner. I just wanted to meet people who were interesting and sexy. Eventually, I got to a place where I realized I wasn't going to date anyone like who was younger than like 37, 38, because the younger guys were all over me. <laughs> And I was like, I could have given birth to you. I am not having sex with you. Um, that does sound some, fun, though. I know. You know what? They're fun, but they're idiots. They're idiots. They were idiots when I was young, and they're idiots now because they, I think men in their 20s and 30s, nothing, like for the most part, most of them have not experienced obstacles in their lives in any like big, meaningful way. It's all like blue sky potential and I'm going to rule the world. Yay, patriarchy. And like even the most open-minded and progressive guys, like the world is kind of their oyster. And so they can treat you however. And it's like, no, oh, fuck you. Like, get away from me. They were useless to me. They sucked when I was young and they suck now that I'm not young. Yeah, I found that guys who had sort of had a little more grit and were had lived a little bit and had been through some stuff were more present to like how miraculous it is to actually connect with someone and just were able to be the people that I wanted them to be. And I dated some guys who were in similar life situations to me, newly divorced, figuring out custody stuff. And those guys ended up, I think, being friends, a couple of them. I ended up friends with them, but they were all still too fucked up over their divorces to actually be available for fun, you know, for fun. And that's what I was looking for was fun. Interesting. I just hadn't had a lot of fun for about a decade, sexual or otherwise. I mean, my professional life was the source of my fun and I have loved my career and have gotten so much out of it. But I, I was just really looking to rebuild the personal side of my life and went about it, you know, somewhat unconventionally, but but in a way that, that is that super interesting. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk about kind of the breaking point, though, of like getting COVID, being 50. Like, I, I feel like for women, when they turn 50, it's like a whole lot of breakthroughs or wanting to 100%. be at a certain place. 100%. How old are you? I'm 44. Yeah. Okay. So you got a minute. Yeah. You know, I was working like a maniac in my job. I was grinding really hard. That was the culture of the company, the culture of our team. And I was a superstar at work. I was crushing it because it was compensating for so many things in my life that were not working. So, you know, when I stepped out of the house, I felt successful and in the house, I felt less so. And so I got COVID and I thought I was vaccinated and I thought, okay, well, this is just like a bad cold. You know, I can kind of work through it a little bit. And then I started getting sicker and then I started not really being able to work. And I went to the hospital. I went to a shitty hospital in my new neighborhood as I didn't really know where to go. And they were like, yeah, it looks like you have COVID. And I was like, I know I have COVID, but did you check my blood oxygen? Because it's not good. And they're like, yeah, I mean, we could do x-rays or we can give you antibiotics. I was like, this is not definitive on any level. I guess I'm going home. And then a week later, I was feeling real, real bad. And I went to UCLA and they were like, oh, come right this way. <laughs> and checked me into a room by myself. It was the first time I had been by myself in a room with really no one bothering me and people coming 
to take care of me. And it felt really profound. Oh, I like this. Like I have a life-threatening illness, but I'm experiencing something that I deeply, deeply need, which is time for myself and quiet. That was very shocking to me. You're in the hospital. You're very ill. You're hooked up to all these machines. I was not intubated. I was able to get remdesivir and steroids and all the things that they were doing at the time. And I was relatively young for someone who had COVID that severe with not a lot of comorbidities. And so it was life-threatening enough for me to be checked in for 48 hours. And it was as close to death as, as I'd ever come Whoa. in my life. Right. Have you been checked into the hospital with something that could kill you that's killed a million people like I never had? No. And so somehow when my ex was he so he looked after the kids for the weekend and it was very hard for him because he had never done it by himself. He was obviously very stressed and worried about me. But the way it showed up was he picked a fight with me over text as he was coming to pick me up. And I was like, this is not right. Like things have been bad between us. But like that was like, oh, this is kind of a marriage vow thing. Like this is kind of the in sickness and in health part. Yeah, that doesn't. Mm -mm, I don't think that's okay. I'm a crazy person. I got home and the first thing I was inspired to do was make a PowerPoint presentation about everything that's fucked up in the world and all the lies I've been telling myself. Are you kidding? That's insane and awesome. <laughs> it's insane. And it was called, oh my God, so much bullshit. <laughs> I'm a lunatic. That was the idiom that I was working in. Yeah. You're like, this is how lines. I present. Lines. <laughs> such a corporate person thing to do. It wasn't mostly about my personal life. It was mostly about like what I was doing professionally and how I really felt because I was so, so overworked and so overwhelmed and like really just needed a break. And I stayed home for another couple of weeks to recover. And during that time, some space opened up in my mind and in my heart. And I started to think, I think we're at the end of this relationship. I what mean, was the final slide? <laughs> don't know what the final slide was, <laughs> but the, you know, I talked to my ex and I said, let's try couples counseling one more time because he was so angry at me for getting sick. He was so angry at me, I think, because he got really scared, right? Like, what is my life going to be as a single parent? Can I handle this? Also, I love this person and she seems to be overworking to a degree that is crazy. But the thing that I couldn't tolerate was kind of being blamed for getting COVID, which is what I what I felt was happening, you know, and being accused that, that my workaholism was the reason that I was so sick. And, you know, I think I certainly worked a few days longer than I should have. But I also then said, OK, I need to stop. I'm going to stop. Yeah. And then I got very, very sick and I needed to be taken care of. And that wasn't possible. I wasn't the person who got taken care of in the marriage. I was the caretaker. We tried couples counseling again. We got another, we got a great person. It didn't work. And we agreed that if the couples counseling didn't work, we would split. And then we would get into these fights and he would say, I'm just going to move out. And I just started to say, when? Uh -huh. When is when? Because I needed the relief. I needed the relief. I, ne I needed it to end. And I wanted to talk about divorce with the couples counselor and they wouldn't let me. Because, you know, their job is to try to keep you together. I'm like, why do you have skin in this game? Like, if this is over, it's over. Yeah. And then he decided to move out. And I couldn't believe it. I absolutely couldn't believe it. Talk to me I about just, what that was I like. Just yeah. I didn't think it was going to happen. Pretty quickly after that happened, the kids said to me, you know, Mom, I feel bad about saying this, but it feels better. Because we were fighting all the time. It was miserable for them. And at least it was quiet and peaceful for them. 
you know, and they didn't have to walk on eggshells. My God, your face is hilarious. I got the goosebumps from that, though. That's actually crazy that that's what they said. And they were 10. And I know it's it's very hard. The divorce is very hard on them because it is not conflict free. And it, I try my best to really be the most stable, moderating, stabilizing force in their lives. But I get triggered by him still. So, you know, we're working through those challenges and we both love the kids. So we just have different capacities for caretaking. What were you the most afraid of in things coming to an end? Like, I, I want to know more of that PowerPoint presentation. Like, do you remind yourself of the PowerPoint presentation? The PowerPoint presentation was less about the relationship okay. and more about like the state of media and like uh, the patriarchy <laughs> Uh, you know, it was just all, I don't know. It was like a weird explosion of honesty about a lot of things that I had sort of been towing the line on in my life because subsequent to the marriage splitting up, I got laid off from the job too. When it so, rains, it pours. That's what I six thought. Six months later, the job was gone. Ugh. And honestly, I was so relieved. I was just so relieved for a fresh start across the board and so ready to be a different person, so ready to be a better version of myself and not be so corporate. I had not planned to be so corporate. And I became that way because I needed money. I still <laughs> still need money and I'm building my business now. But it's I let that keeping up with the Joneses kind of mentality and the sort of the outside looks so good. I let that be the defining, you know, the definition of success for me when inside I was just truly miserable and kind of a shell of myself because I didn't have any way to like fill my, fill my own coffers, my own resources. Right. So I needed to do that by myself and for myself. And so I've been very happy. I've been very happy for the last two years because I'm super independent. You know, I have been sort of charting my own path and it's scary and there's no direct deposit and the relationship I'm in now, like maybe that lasts and maybe it doesn't. You know, I there's no guarantees about anything. Maybe money flows and maybe it doesn't. But like I am living much truer to my own self, nature, desires, impulses, talents. Like, yeah. I feel a lot. I feel reborn. That's so awesome. I actually would love to talk about like, what did you think marriage was going to be like? And like, versus what it actually was. I mean, I wish I could tell you that I had any idea of what marriage was going to be like, because it's not like I had it. Mo I mean, like I had good grandparents and I have cousin who has a marriage that I really admire. But like in general, that was definitely the lesson of my childhood from my parents was we don't fucking know. Like literally no one ever once in my whole life talked to me about when you get married at your wedding, your husband should be. No one said any of those words to me ever. That's insane. These are people who were married and then unmarried and then married and then unmarried. But like literally you wouldn't think to tell your daughter like, hey, here's some things you might think about in your life about like who you breed with and who you commit the rest of your life to. Nope. Sorry. We don't know. So I didn't think I would ever get married. I thought I would live this bohemian life where, you know, I would find some cool creative guy and we would be artists together and we would live together and then we would have some kids and, you know, we would choose each other all the time. 
and we didn't need the the man to tell us what our taxes should say. Like we didn't need the federal government to be involved. That's not the decision I made, though. The decision I made was when I met my ex, we got married when I was 35. I was ready to have kids. My previous boyfriend, we had broken up because he knew he didn't want kids. And I was still a little heartbroken over that when I met my ex. You know, he this guy was crazy about me. And... I thought he was smart and sophisticated and worldly and definitely one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. I mean, he's really brilliant. And we had amazing repartee and we talked about art and we, you know, we had all a lot of the things, but he had a, like a stable grown up career in technology. And so I was like, this is awesome. And he wants kids and he, and he wanted to marry me. And I was like, well, all right. <laughs> let's try this yeah like i'm not gonna say no i love him like if that's what he wants then cool we did it and my mom was real happy because she didn't have that kind of wedding it was so much about her and her happiness too yeah so i don't know that i gave too much thought to what a marriage is supposed to be be like because I was so grateful that I had found someone who loved me, who wanted to be with me, who I recognized his baggage and he recognized my baggage. And we both went, yeah, I can deal with that. That looks familiar. I thought we wanted to live the same life. You know, I thought we were looking ahead to, you know, increasing stability and prosperity and creative self-expression and raising kids together. And I overlooked so many red flags. <laughs> because of what I wanted and how willful I am, how determined I was to not be 40 or 45 and looking back and going, oh, I, I really should have had kids. I was seeing my friends heading in that direction. And I had friends who were older than me, who that was their situation too. And so I did not want that to be my life. And I didn't want to be a starving artist. And so you know, I made a bunch of decisions that would lead me in the, having a career with a capital C, having a family with a capital F. Turns out the F <laughs> stands for something else <laughs> now. But uh, <laughs> I don't think I gave it enough thought. And we did couples counseling periodically all the way through. Really? You know, mm -hmm. we're both big therapy people. Crazy about therapy. We'll never not have a therapist. My kids have therapists. Everybody has a therapist. That seems very L.A. <laughs> oh, I lived in New York. I mean, I lived in New York forever. Everyone in New York has therapists, too. I guess it's it's liberal coastal elites that always have therapists. That's what I always joke about. It's what the right wing is worried about. Well, be worried about me. Yeah. I don't know. I think I went into it pretty blind and pretty blinded, kind of only looking at the things I wanted to see or being trained to accept things that were not okay. Why do women do that? We want to please. We want to be approved of. And also there's just pattern recognition in all of our behavior, right? Like mm. we're, we're pattern seeking creatures. It's epigenetic or it's, you know, biological in some way. You get imprinted and then you seek to repeat. Do you and think upbringing and values, it really boils down to that? I mean, do you think that plays into marriage? I mean, of course. Of course. And then you also, your cells seek what they recognize. I really believe that. Unless you have done enough work to recognize like, hey, some of these patterns are things to like try not to repeat. But I think that's what a divorce and a new lease on life is for. I don't know how much we can avoid it. We repeat what we were raised with. Even if we don't want to. Yeah. What I, are you like I teaching your kids now? 
Like, are you talking to them? I'm, I'm sure. But are you trying to teach them maybe not to make some of the same mistakes or to think differently about marriage even? Yeah, we don't really talk. I don't talk to my son so much about marriage. My daughter and I have kind of a girlfriend relationship and we talk about crushes. We don't talk about marriage, but she's learning some lessons through the divorce that I think aren't awesome. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And they will certainly, and both of them, it will inform how they engage in relationships in the future. You know, so I'm trying hard to model. You can change your life. You can change your circumstance, but custody is hard on kids. Going back and forth is hard on kids. If you have a parent who's dysregulated. What are you learning now? what I want, what's okay with me, how not to grasp too tightly to anything, how to let the universe do its work. You know, like my biggest fear right now is that I have this boyfriend and he's amazing. He's younger than me and he doesn't want kids and he hasn't met my kids yet and he's not going to ever be their dad in any way. I'm afraid that all the drama with my ex will scare him off. And if it does, it does. And there's nothing I can do about that. Damn, I got the chills there too. That's incredible surrender right there. Yeah. Yeah. And if he's for me, he's for me. And if he's not, he's not. And I can't scheme or manipulate to make things how I want them to be. I just can be honest and try my best and be who I am in the circumstance that I'm in. Try to show up, you know, as mature as I can. And sometimes I fuck up and I'm going to be okay with that too, because I can't sit around beating myself up over not getting it exactly right all the time. But I'm also like, you know, if my ex wants to go to family counseling. I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing that now. We've tried it so many times. It's never succeeded. That's not on the table for me right now. Not today. Like, I'm not going to beat my head against a wall and try to change someone who I can't change. That's why I left. I'm just trying to affect the things I can affect and really work on myself and try to get to a place where I'm so in charge of myself that I don't react, that I can put a pause between something that happens or something that's said and or something that's texted to me, like just delete texts. That's powerful. That is yeah. amazing. I screenshot that them. <laughs> <laughs> but that you can react differently to how you might have reacted before. I mean, I think yeah. that that is growth in itself. Totally. And, you know, sometimes I feel like, oh, I cut the wires. The buttons don't work. And then the other, other times it's like, oh, they're totally all still there. Fuck. Treat me in a certain way and you get the reaction. So I'm just really trying to show up as the most real, least full of shit version of myself. And sometimes I catch myself doing some of my old tricks. Then I go, oh, that's interesting. What are those? Oh, like I recently was in a conversation with my boyfriend and I'm so scared that he's going to be like, yeah, fuck this. Like, this is nuts. I don't want this. That I said something like, yeah, there's lots of women out there who don't have this drama. And that's true that you can see I'm having an emotional reaction to that. Like, that's true, but that's also a dare, right? That's me daring him to leave or bail. Uh, so I, that then I get that. Some, some part of my psychology is fulfilled. Like, yeah, right. See, I am unlovable. Aww. You know, like something like that is what's is what happens, is happening when I do a behavior like that. And I just want to own that and go, yeah, poor me. Like, that's sad. Don't do that. But the difference between me now and, the, and me at 30 is that I catch myself. I recognize my patterns. I've done enough work on myself and I'm much kinder to myself. So instead of being like, yeah, why do you fucking do that? What, you know, what's your problem? Like, why would you, you know, it's like, yeah, look at that. Look at that. Oh, poor baby. 
Do you ever like apologize to yourself or like remember when you're like badass to like pick yourself back up because you've accomplished so many amazing things? And oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, my refractory period for my own self-criticism is short. I'm in the business of being very kind to myself and very forgiving of myself and very supportive of myself. That's because, amazing. Yeah, because I wasn't. Because I wasn't. And also because that's what I want to model for my kids. And that's what I'm talking about on my podcast. And I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to be the best version of myself. And you can't be if you have a self-critical radio station playing in your head all the time. I definitely have learned over the years to talk back to that criticism and say, uh, thanks so much for that shitty point of view. Uh, <laughs> I do not need that. Uh, you are not helpful. I am changing the channel. I had someone say on my podcast recently, uh, this woman named Katie Goodman, who teaches you how to communicate with your inner critic and turn them into an inner coach. She just says to that voice, not relevant, not relevant. <laughs> like, I like that. That that mean, blunt, self-critical voice, the one that says you're fat, whatever, you're dumb, or you fucked up again, look at you. Not relevant, not real. No, thank you. That's not helpful for me in my growth and my goals and my life. You know, the love I want and the love I give. And mm -mm. I don't want to be a small self-critical version of myself. I want to be a big, self-expressed, juicy version of myself. I want that for other women. Amen. I love that. I mean, I'd love you to talk about what you've taken from even like your creative projects and like some of that and how that's playing into what you're doing with building your own show. I think it's really cool that you're like, you know, I could potentially go back to that life. I mean, you were yep. an executive for 20 years, but right now I'm trying this out and I'm burning it down and I'm rebuilding myself and I only have X number of years left. I think that that is so admirable because you've spent like you said, so many years behind the shadows, behind the yeah. scenes, developing others, developing yeah. other projects and people. And now you're doing that for you. Yeah. For me and for an audience of women who are underserved with authentic conversations. Totally. There's a lot of self-help out there. I don't really dig it. There's a lot of woo-woo out there that is nonsense. I'm Gen X. Yep. Like we are direct. We are cynical. We are resourceful. We are scrappy. We figure stuff out really adaptive. For me, what's so important is to just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. You don't have to sugarcoat everything and not everything is nice or pretty or whatever. And I just want us all to have real conversations. What I'm constantly looking at in my own self-development is, you know, where am I lying? And yeah. where am I telling the truth? And how does it feel to do one versus the other? I think for me, like, I love having a podcast because I love talking to people, which clearly you do too. Right? <laughs> I love talking to people and finding out and having the forum to ask probing questions and all of that, right? Yep. For me, the questions that I ask are for my own growth and my own curiosity, but also for my listeners and their growth and their curiosity, and I try to channel them and think, what would they want to know? What would they ask? What are they curious about? I talk about my life in an honest way because we don't talk about our lives in honest ways. We all pretend. Yep. And we worry like about what other people think and That's right. I don't, hurting others. Yeah. I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want to hurt my ex. I don't want to hurt my dad. I don't want to, you know, the men in my life who are difficult, like I'm not here to hurt them or get revenge or do anything, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm trying to be a loving person. I'm trying to be a respectful and respectable person. I'm trying to live in my own rules about my integrity. 
and self-expression. But I'm also tired of making nice and I'm tired of choosing other people and their well-being over myself. And the idea of having my own back and being my best support system and not selling myself out, you know, that is the most important thing to me. I think we get into a lot of compromises in our lives because we want, we see X at the end of the rainbow. And so we'll do whatever it takes to get to that. And some of that isn't great for us. And some of that really doesn't feel good. And we normalize like, well, it's okay because blah, blah, blah. like I'm not doing things that feel like selling myself out anymore. Can you That's, talk about yeah. like what it took to become a television executive? Can you paint that picture? Because that could not have been easy. I was a writer performer in New York and I was producing shows downtown and I was auditioning, but I sucked at it. So I would get auditions, but I wouldn't book jobs or I would get commercial auditions and they would go, okay, that's great. Can you not mock the product? <laughs> no, I cannot. This is not for me. <laughs> I do not want to sell your thing. <laughs> I want the job, but I don't want to do the job. Yeah, I was too self-conscious in an audition room. I never figured out how to just say fuck it and just like leave it all in the room and go and whatever. Like I just needed approval so badly. And then I was really resentful of the fact that there were people on the other side of the table who had more agency than me because they were making the decisions and they were putting the project together. And I was like, I think, and I was producing everything I was involved in, you know, from one person shows to sketch groups, to improv groups, to festivals of people doing solo material and like all kinds of stuff. And I started to realize that there was a whole business, which I'm, I was slow on the uptake. <laughs> so all I could see was being an actor, you know, all I could see was performing. And then I realized I enjoyed the whole picture, maybe even more than the being on stage. And so I stopped performing to see if I could stop performing. Because if I could stop performing, then a whole other life was available for me. And I could. And it was okay. And I got a job as an assistant at Comedy Central. It was my first job. I decided I wanted to work there. It was hopping in New York. There was lots going on. The Daily Show was happening. And the, during the time that I was there, Chappelle's show got greenlit and made. And I was the assistant to the general manager there, um, who was a wonderful human being. And it was kind of a grad school in TV for me. And I was like, I just want to get close to the script. I understand language. I'm a great reader. I'm a great writer. Like, I think I get it. I think I get it on the page. And because I've been an actor, I understood casting and I had directed a bunch of stuff on stage. And so I was like, you know, there are people who get to make the decisions about what shows go on the air and who get to shape those shows and be part of the creative process, but also have a direct deposit kind of job. Like, I think that's good for me. And part of me was like, oh, I should go work on the production side, but I didn't like the hours. Oh, yeah. I didn't want to work a billion hours. You know, and I, I really wanted to set myself up for, you know, grown up things like marriage and kids and maybe not marriage, but kids. I knew that that was what I wanted. And so at what age did you know that? 30. Yeah, not until 30. And so, you know, I started winding my way through what was then cable television in New York City, working at different places, working for producers, you know, doing like short stints as a consultant in different places. For one whole year, I read I read every script that was written in the UK that had been greenlit as a television show on behalf of BBC America and helped them figure out, made wrote coverage, thousands and thousands of scripts worth of coverage. So I really started to under, understand the mechanics of screenwriting 
screenwriting and what good writing looked like, especially because it was from England and they just are better writers than we are. You know, I'd help them make recommendations about what would work for the American audience that was being made in the UK. And so, you know, and I got good at sort of explaining what I thought and knowing what I thought when I was reading like really understanding my own point of view. At a certain point, I was like, I want to get paid for my taste because I had this very specific alternative comedy taste that was everywhere downtown, but nowhere really on TV or, you know, it was just starting to percolate up. And so I worked for this like insane startup doing short form content for the internet and which wasn't even like the pipes weren't even big enough yet for video to be on the internet in any real consistent way. So, you know, I just really tried to stay close to the things that were lighting me up professionally. I love that. Um, development always just felt so creative to me. And also because I had been an artist, I could advocate well for artists and I could talk to them and we could shape things together. And that has been the defining thing of my career. You know, I always do the work. I always do the homework. I always do the reading. I'm a very good student. I'm total goody two-shoes in a million ways, not in my personal life yeah. anymore. I just worked my way up, honestly. I just worked my way up. And I was really looking for a career where I could work my way up because it felt like there was no path and there was no ladder and there was no whatever. And I had to bounce around a lot for a lot of years. And then I landed at the Independent Film Channel at the moment that it was transforming into IFC and really helped them become a place for alternative comedy with Portlandia and a bunch of other awesome shows that were so weird in a way that I felt like I totally understood. Then I came out to LA because all my shows were in LA. I had just had twins after a long fertility battle. I was like, something has to feel easier than this life in New York. And I searched my soul to see if L.A., you know, was a terrible idea and nothing was telling me that it was. And my ex was totally open to it. And so we moved out here and that was I opened the IFC L.A. office. I worked for a company called Big Beach that uh, was an indie film shop. They did Little Miss Sunshine and a bunch of other stuff that I loved and helped them start their TV division and then got recruited by Snapchat, helped to really define originals there and make original shows for mobile and learn how to make do filmmaking for mobile and so and learned about augmented reality and all of this you know future facing stuff and and all of it's been an incredible ride but in it I was selling my voice you license your voice to a company and you're a spokesperson for a company and sometimes I feel like oh my god Aaron the things you're doing now the things you're saying you are really killing your future career prospects <laughs> Just by being so self-expressed and open and talking about sex and what is right for you will come to you. And I don't think there's a benefit to lying. For me right now at this phase in my life, I think my success in the future will come from the depth of my honesty and the totality of my self-expression. And I have to believe in that. And I really want to build my own thing. And I know how to make great stuff. I will continue to make great stuff. It might just look different than it did in my corporate life. And it's a little bit more of a tightrope. But I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to do it because once you once you set the bird out of the cage, <laughs> she doesn't want to go back in. I love it. I admire it. I think it's awesome. And I think that you're going to be like your own media empire. And you didn't Thank learn you. all of that for nothing. I didn't learn all of that for nothing. That's right. That's right. And my instincts are very, I forget what I know. Mm. I forget that I know a lot. And then I've done, you know, I've made hundreds and hundreds of things. Thousands and millions of people have watched and loved. I feel pretty confident when I look at my track record of success and I go, well, if the past is any indicator of the future, you know, I think we're all going to be all right. 
And I love the title of your show, Hotter Than Ever, Girl. That's what you are. Thank you. Is there anything you. you'd like to ask my dad? Oh, dad. What does he think of this chapter? What do you think of this chapter? You know, reinvention. I, I love the subject of reinvention because I've seen my dad reinvent himself too. And I yeah. think that he embraces pivoting. And I think we all have to. I mean, yeah. I some stat that in the future, we're all going to have five careers. Everyone's going to have five distinct careers in their lives. And everyone learns needs to learn to be agile. What does your dad think my odds are of success? Ah, <laughs> 100, 100. Aaron, this has been an absolute pleasure. I loved collaborating with you. Please let people know how they can find your show and support you and be a part of your empire. Thank you so much. Go find me on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else you get podcasts, even where you're listening to this right now. Hotter Than Ever is my show. Follow my show on Instagram at Hotter Than Ever Pod. Write in, ask me questions. I'm starting to do some listener call-in stuff, which is my favorite. I am totally unqualified to give advice and I will advise from my own specific, very biased point of view. You've heard from my mom. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. What do you think Aaron's odds of success are? I think Aaron's odds of success is good. One of the reasons why people that are in the background at times come to the forefront is because they've learned hands-on how to do everything. And when you learn how to do everything and you work sometimes behind the scenes, it's not a bad thing. But eventually, wouldn't it be nice to then have an opportunity to come to the forefront or to fulfill your own dreams or the American dream? That's what this country stands for, is to work hard. Even if you're behind the scenes and you're working for other people, is to someday be your own entrepreneur, your own person to do your own dance, okay? Not where you're just following someone else's dance. What I found to be also a little fascinating is that she also wants to have pleasure in her life and not just to please the man, but she wants the man to please her too. She wants to be able to feel the full emotion of, I think I can say it on the show, her, her own sexual experience that it's positive and good and feels great and not where she has to just please the man. She wants the man to please her too. And a lot of times women even play a back seat in that role too, and they shouldn't have to. And uh, they shouldn't have to play a back role in business. They shouldn't have to play a back role trying out for a play or being on the stage or or singing the background music, where if they can shine, they should be able to also have equal opportunity to be able to be out in the forefront and sing a solo. That's the thing. The thing is, is that we want to go through life where we want to be a good teammate, but we also want to be able to have an opportunity to take the spotlight too. okay? She's at the point in her life where she wants to be able to take her ups and downs and her experiences and share it with others, but she wants to be in front of the camera. She wants to be out there and going for that brass ring too. She wants to be able to shoot for the stars and not play second fiddle. And I got news for you. That should be a quest that everyone should be able to be able to go for it and let the cards fall where they may. Sometimes you don't make it, but not to try, not to go for it when you have the background and the experience and you've worked with so many other people and help them along. Why not take a shot yourself? I try to tell you to do the same thing. I was going to say, are you talking to Aaron? Or are you talking to me? Well, the irony is that if the shoe fits, wear it. And the truth of the matter is, is that you'd be surprised how many people out there can wear a pair of shoes if they only try it on. 
And it doesn't have to be one size fit all, but why don't you find the shoe that fits and go for it? And that's what Aaron's episode is about. Find the shoe that fits and go for it. It's almost like a, a Greek story where the shoe has wings and can fly. And that's what she wants to be able to do. She wants to be able to put on her own pair of shoes and fly. I think that's wonderful. And the truth of the matter is, is that I like flying too. I love what you said. You know, what's also ironic is that look how the path of getting there, there's bumps all along the way. And every beautiful story that we've heard on the Better Call Daddy show shows that you can pivot no matter what bumpy road that we must travel, that there can be some smooth sailing if we don't give up and continue to invest in the growth of ourselves and the people around us that we all can enjoy a very nice ride because that is what the world's about is trying to learn from our imperfections and have the opportunity to improve it. If we were all perfect to start off with, what a boring ride. So understanding the ups and downs at life is what makes us better people, where we can make better choices. And that's what I think the human race experiment is about, is to figure out through all the variations that are out there to make good choices and pick the best variations that you can. All right, good. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. <laughs> I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's wrap for now.